first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherload. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Alright, gentlemen, this is going to be fun. I'm much happier talking in this format. <laughs> and, I mean, we already kind of talked in the the thing that will show up at Realms Deep itself about you know all the logistical crap that goes into making a movie like this. I mean, and it, we have a, a essentially the film expert here and the the subject matter expert on first person shooters, as you said. You even wrote a book, you said about it, David. Yes, yeah, uh, Rocket Jump, Quake, and the Golden Age of yeah. First Person Shooters, and uh, yeah, it was really fun. Published through Shack News. You can read it for free actually right now at ShackNews.com. So I mean we're going to have to dig into that. This is in, in the keep has been just all about bringing the limelight of, you know, not just the nineties, but what, what its influence has been on what essentially has been a, a new wave of boomer shooters, as we call it, <laughs> uh, over the, you know, the past couple of years, essentially since dusk came out, there were a few before like a strafe or rack that attempted it. And I think we're actually quite good but just didn't you know you catch lightning in a bottle once every few years maybe and for whatever reason david Szymanski and dave oshery just nailed it with dusk um but that game was essentially like remember all the things that you liked about the games in the 90s what if we removed all the things that you don't like and just keep the good and do that and uh, that's what we got but for you you wrote a whole book on the subject what what is your feeling what was what were the what was the golden age in your mind? I think it was the 90s because of, of flavor. The 90s for first-person shooters is like when you walk into a frozen yogurt store or an ice cream store and you see like 86 flavors spread out. And you can get them in any combination you want. I mean, you had games like Doom. And in fact, until the, the term first-person shooter kind of caught on, they were known as Doom clones. But then mm-hmm. you started getting a lot of variety. We had Duke Nukem, which aside from the episode where you go up to the moon, was set on Earth and had very sort of pseudo-realistic level design. You could go through you know, strip clubs, bathrooms, movie theaters, and interact with stuff. I mean, while you were shooting pig cops, uh, you could play billiards at a pool table. Uh, and then you had games like Quake and Unreal and Kingpin, where you're kind of like in a, in a street gang. Wheel of Time, which is probably my favorite epic fantasy book series and the best epic fantasy book series. There's a game about that. But as you went into, I would say, by 2006 or seven, really with the, the advent of Call of Duty 4, FPS, at least AAA blockbuster, big budget FPS, kind of became homogenous, you know, became very, very militarized. And there's nothing I'm not trying to make an ethical statement about that theme, but you lost that flavor. It's kind of like your ice cream bar shrunk from 86 flavors down to like two. I mean, and... You even have that, that transition between Quake 1 and 2, as a matter of fact. Like it oh, goes yeah. From being this, you know, Lovecraftian fantasy game to being a uh, essentially like a, a space marine <laughs> doom clone to some extent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it really was. I mean, in fact, that's one of the things I wrote about. Like they even talked about how the name Quake meant nothing. It was just a brand. There was never any carryover in terms of story or characters, it was just like, this is the next Quake. What does Quake mean? Well, it means fast-paced arena-style arena style shooting. And so when I wrote Rocket Jump, you know, the core or the epicenter, if you will, is, is the development of the Quake trilogy and how that kind of took a toll, for better or worse, on the culture within id software. Yeah. Um, good, bad, and ugly. But around that, I thought, you know what, let's, let's look at some of the games that that Wolfenstein 3D, but especially Doom and Quake inspired. And so 
I wrote about the development of the original Team Fortress mod, which was a mod for Quake. That's how that started. I wrote about the making of Star Wars Dark Forces, which was, again, going back to flavor, like you could be in the Star Wars universe using all those blasters with the authentic soundtrack and the pew pew of the of the blasters as you were shooting. It felt like you were there. Um, and so it was really cool to get to, to talk to all these people like John Romero. I got to talk to John Carmack. In fact, when I emailed him, he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. I love your work. And that was one of those moments where I was like, what? Like, what is my life? Um, and when Robin contacted me, I just thought, you know, I've been wanting to make. Whether it's a TV show or a documentary or a dramatization about Rocket Jump, because it's a story that really needs to be told. And so it was almost kismet at least for me it was like yes finally here's someone who who sees the potential so you mentioned how quake's lore i guess really just kind of doesn't exist to some extent um lore yeah yeah, yeah. retroactively (laughs) uh they've attempted to pull it back together so i say that to say there's like the reason why in the keep is called in the keep and has this big octopus logo um contrary to popular belief it is not hail hydra (laughs) (laughs) because that was funny last year um because i was wearing we were wearing like the red logo shirts when we attacked mike j and which i thought was fucking funny but like i didn't realize how people were gonna read it and i was like oh shit (laughs) yeah 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 but anyway the the point being that uh the reason why in the keep is called in the keep is because originally it was called cathala's keep and Mm -hmm. cathala being like the lovecraftian successor to cthulhu Mm -hmm was a major player in the lore of quake um and i was looking like well we got to do something like that that'd be really cool that's kind of what the show's theme is anyway and originally it really was just about arena fps and talking about quake and games like quake and Mm -hmm. quake mods and you know on and on until i ran out of material and i was like all right let's start talking about all these other cool games too (laughs) yeah you probably know about then sandy peterson like he actually came from a background of designing lovecraftian board games and mythology and so when he you know, came to it, he worked on Doom, but then when Quake came up, he was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is my jam right here. Yeah. yeah. I had to, I had to find some little way to try to like sneak that in, but like, that's why at the beginning of the show, it still says like, this is all in service of the drowned God Cathala shit, you know, because I'm a I love huge, it. huge dork when it comes to stuff like that. Yes. Same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apologies now, Robin, uh, we've, we're already like, what was it? Five minutes in, we just dived right into a bunch of shit that I don't. You guys are just like you go down your rabbit holes. <laughs> in my head, this is like a lecture, right? And I just want to soak it all up. Um, That's right. You know, with with, with Lovecraft, um, with our previous um, '80s horror documentaries, we obviously covered uh, Reanimator, um, which was a big sort of love Lovecraft inspired mm-hmm. movie. So that's what I was thinking about. I figured, I figured you would, uh, you were probably thinking about that. So yeah, we'll get Sandy to talk about that. And in yeah. fact, uh, one thing John Romero sent me a few years ago when I was writing this book that I, he asked me not to show it to anyone. So I didn't, he let me publish like a page, but it'd be really cool to show during the documentary. I have the full design document from Quake, what it was originally envisaged as. And there is so, is so much more intricate than what they were able to ship. Because if you know the history of Quake, and I do get into this in Rocket Jumper. We're definitely going to discuss it in FPS, but it was really hard development. I mean, they were working around the clock and and a lot of John Romero's vision for that game didn't really come together. You know, as you know, each of the four episodes, you start in a military base. And then from there, you're like in Lovecraftian castles. And you're like, well, that was kind of a, a jarring leap thematically. But they're actually, those are all supposed to be interconnected in a big hub world where you'd be taking the slip gates, which factored into Quake's you know, like one paragraph story in the manual, whatever it ended up being, that took you from these these far-flung futuristic military bases into the heart of this horror Lovecraftian setting. So it's it's really fascinating stuff. It's it's absolutely mind-blowing how even though, you know, all of that stuff got cut and, and didn't really make it into the limelight, like the community, which is what I've been mainly focused on, have just taken and run with it. And, you mm-hmm. know, now now it's very common in the in the Quake mapping community, which for whatever reason is like fucking huge. And I mean, probably we could get into that, actually. There, there's a reason for it, and I think I understand why. But the the community, they'll say like it's a base map or, you know, it's a castle map. Or like, and that's a very just kind of common easy thing for them to talk about and then we all they understand the, the whole slipgate scenario and that you, you know, we're going into different worlds 
Um, and th- that's kind of hearkening back to, are you guys familiar? You know who, uh, what's his name? Weinstein, not Harvey, not, not Brett, his brother. Either way, he did this podcast called Portal, The Portal. And he was talking about how like in all um, fantasy, there's this concept that you, especially for children, children's fantasy, like uh, Through the Looking Glass or like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Harry Potter, this idea that everybody kind of harkens to that desire to kind of like escape the real world and just, you know, walk through a threshold or a wardrobe or whatever it happens to be and, and be in this fantasy. And that was such a, I don't think it was on purpose, but it was a very um, easy thing for people to just kind of like accept and transition into and, and understand, even if they didn't fully know how to word it or where it came from. It's really about taking these yeah. concepts that are generally understood and, and packaging them in a way that your audience will understand. You know, Lovecraft wrote very adult-oriented horror, obviously, but his the, the, the underlying theme to all of his stories is this unseen world, and that applies to everything you described. Blind the Witch in the Wardrobe, Harry Potter, there's a world that kind of overlaps with ours. You just don't see it. And so it's the same sort of concept, but just packaged in a different sort of way to make yeah. it more appealing to a different audience. It's Eric Weinstein, by the way. Eric Weinstein. There we go. Yeah. The third Weinstein. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> but he's like a he was like a mathematician talking about this shit, and I'm like, man, he, he probably understands something that I don't. <laughs> Math is the universal language, even in those worlds. Yeah, yeah. and he, I think recently he published like his kind of not you know theory of everything, where he's trying to like mathematically come up with an idea that sums up the universe you know, I, there, there's been many attempts to do that but just people thinking on that level uh blow my mind and strangely many of them happen to also be people who like enjoy making video games for some reason well, you know john carmack i've yeah. I've, th- I've thought a million times like why isn't this guy at nasa why is he is he making you know he, this guy builds first person shooters by day or he did during his time at id and then he'd go home and play with rockets in fact there's a great story in Rocket Jump, Sandy Peterson told me when you were walking through Id's offices, you'd have to be very careful not to like accidentally trip over cans of flammable and explosive liquid that Carmack just kept lying around <laughs> for whatever he was building. By the way, we need to get a hold of Eric and save him a lot of work. Somebody should already tell him that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. Like so we've already figured it out. So, uh, man. <laughs> so you want to talk about sci fi shit? Uh, I don't need uh, Hitchhikers was definitely not kind of in your 80s documentary. No, well, so right. um, yeah, it's called In Search of Tomorrow. So it's the the poster. Oh, I'm mirrored here. Yeah, there. It's that poster, <laughs> okay. Um, so it's actually the highest grossing crowdfunded documentary in history. We've got about eleven thousand backers, and it's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> but we don't cover Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's TV. So it's really focused on American uh, movies from the eighties. Um, so. Uh, and I'm, it's funny, as I'm talking to you, I'm getting notifications because rough cuts are coming through through the edit suite. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sequences that I'm watching on the films we're covering have been like outstanding. So I'm, I'm already excited. That comes out, that, the film itself will be finished in December. That's, it's going to be really interesting to see because uh, you can correct me, I'm sure you're far more knowledgeable about this than i am but i always kind of felt like the 80s was like a weird maybe that's why you're doing a doc on it but it's it's not like the best time necessarily for horror movies or for anything uh film wise because i feel like there was a dichotomy there's a transition out of the 70s when directors like big directors you know like things like the exorcist were coming out uh the shining huge directors with giant budgets were making horror movies and it was just an accepted thing. It, and it what, even though it wasn't mainstream, it was accepted because they were doing it in the eighties. Uh, what essentially it was 79 evil dead comes out somewhere in that area. It was 80 or 81 evil dead. It was the eighties. Okay. Early on evil dead is kind of like one of those first really big, uh, cult hits that was made on a shoestring budget. And then after that, Lots of other, I think, oh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the 70s, that, too. That was in the 70s. Um, so the one that really broke yeah. 80s horror was probably Friday the 13th. Yeah. And so I got to spend time with the guy that created that, Sean C. Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also did the House movies and a whole bunch of other films. 
but it was just fascinating. You get, I mean, the seventies was the era of the director. Okay. But the eighties, there's something magical about the eighties because there just was no boundaries. It was just about excess. It was just about going all in, right? Yeah. No limits, you know, greed is good. And that, and Reaganomics and, you know, nuclear war imminent. And that filtered through to the psyche into all these facets of art. And we've kind of honed in on 80s horror and 80s sci-fi because there's so much more going on. I mean, these documentaries are hugely nostalgic. I mean, people have them just playing in the yeah. background as a comfort blanket, right? And um, we're going to have close to 75 contributors to the sci-fi documentary. Um, and, uh, you know, we it's going to be hugely nostalgic, but it's also going to... This is why I love what I do, right? So we know if we get something right with one of our films, if it takes something you already know a lot about and helps you re-experiencing it in a new way, right? So um, what I mean by that is if I, if I sort of extrapolate over to FPS, um, you know, I want you to feel like when you first played these games. Okay, I want you to feel that sense of rush. When you finish watching this documentary, I want you to rush out and start playing old FPS games or dig out games you've never played that you missed because there's so many. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be very unusual to find someone that's played them all and knows them all. That's how we know we've done our job right. But, but how you win is you, um, you, you create an experience for the audience where they get to relive their joy for that particular title. You know, and that's that's what's really special about the kind of entertainment we we produce because I think we, you know, that's what we focus on. Do you do you cover the the resurgence of Star Trek during that time period at all? No, no, we don't. We um we actually no, we do because we cover the movies. I think yeah. there was two two movies or th actually three three Star Trek movies in the eighties. So we've got um, we've got Walter Koenig, uh, Koenig who. Uh, was Chekhov, he's in the film. We've got the director of The Wrath of Khan, just names escapes me, in the film. We've got a whole bunch of people from Star Trek in uh, in Search of Tomorrow, but they're talking about the movies. So yeah. you've got to kind of separate that from from the TV series. Yeah. Um, but it's all very exciting. I mean, Wrath of Khan is arguably the, the best Star Trek movie. Um, and think, uh, For me, yeah. it's not. I, I think first contact is the best. <laughs> okay, okay. But uh, we could argue about. I went to see time. just before the pandemic hit in the UK. I went to see William Shatner on stage, okay. and he he it, it he his arrival on stage preceded a screening of Wrath of Khan. I think it's Nicholas Meyer uh, who directed it. Nicholas is in our documentary, so we've already filmed that interview. It's just fascinating. Um, and it still stands up as a great movie um, and with so many iconic moments and scenes and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I'm in search of tomorrow because that's going to come out before FPS. That will be the best thing we've ever done um, and, and probably the most challenging as well, because uh, we've had to do a lot of it through the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, yeah, that's a challenge we overcame. What are some of the, the kind of landmark movies that you are or do want to cover? Well, this is the first major interview for Peter Weller, uh, mm. who obviously is Robocop. Um, pick an 80s sci-fi movie and we're covering it. I mean, you know, we've got E.T., we've got D. Wallace from E.T. Um, we've got... Um, uh, we still, we're still casting. We've still got some top-of-the-food chain names to announce. Uh, that I can't talk about yet, but um, with Predator and Running Man, we've got Jesse Ventura. He was amazing. Jesse the uh, Body Ventura, man. The Body Ventura. <laughs> if you got me in a room with him, we would talk. To, we would be talking about wrestling the whole uh, time. He, <laughs> yeah. he, everything you think about him, he's like you know ten x. So he, his interview was like fire. Right? Um, the scene in Predator when he spits on yeah. Uh, Apollo Creed. <laughs> I can't see yeah, him anyway. Yeah. Spits on his shoe and then like that's a nasty habit you got there. Um, this shit'll make you a sexual tyrannosaurus. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like 
I love that. And, and um, you know, but he, you know, he, he, he's, he's very, very intelligent man, but he still has yeah. that gizmo. Um, but huge. I mean, that was one of my standout interviews so far, but it's been so many. I mean, um, uh, God, we've got, we've probably shot already like 40 something interviews. We talking to Star Trek. We had Will Wheaton last week. Oh my God. Joe, we've got Joe Dante. We've got, um, oh, like just so like, icons you know um and it's been amazing it's it's yeah it's such a privilege and um i can't wait like i love 80s horror and it was my first big big long form doc that i set up but making me so jealous yeah changing the theme of my show i mean the terminator (laughs) you got the terminator predator alien we got carrie hen uh we got a few people from aliens already um Carrie Hen played Newt. Um, we've got a few people from Aliens as well, and, and a, a, quite a few of the, the um, like makeups and effects people and, and writers and all of that kind of stuff. So you're getting all these unique perspectives. And, and it takes something you know, like we've all seen Aliens like a million times, right? Or Predator a million. You're quoting Predator. That's how much you've seen it, right? And so our job is to make, is to kind of, get you to understand it and experience those moments in a new way right and and when that happens it's great now i look i look at youtube a lot especially when i've been you know youtube inspired uh, my decision to to go in and, and make a documentary about fps because i saw so many creators dedicating whole channels around this and i was like wow this is really deep this is you know visceral memories yeah. Um, G Man, Civi. Yeah, well, G Man is a film, right? And and there's a you know Civi, um, and there's a whole bunch of people who are amazing, and and um, that's what inspired us. But the opportunity we have is to is just logistical, you know. So we're able to go out and get everyone together. The, these projects take a long time to put together, um, but ultimately, it's a love letter to the genre, you know. It, and and um, I, I can't wait. We're in the thick of it right now. We're at war in a Kickstarter. Crowdfunding is a full contact sport. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm loving it. And I absolutely adore the team we have because, you know, there, there's no room for weakness. You can't have a weak link with, with the way we operate and how we do things. And I'm just really grateful. All right. I'm about to do the mother of all transitions. I'm setting up for a three-pointer right here. Ready? Oh, I see it. So... 80s sci-fi and horror in general the children of that generation grew up to make all of the games that we love from the 90s 100%. how many references in in Swish. 90s games come directly from things like the evil dead like robocop like all of that stuff it's amazing it's amazing and um i can tell you about my experience of fps games right so I wouldn't classify myself as a gamer. Um, the two eras of my life that involved gaming were uh, when I was a kid on the 8-bit, loved it, and then I sort of you know, got into girls and whatever else and kind of left it alone. And then in my early 20s, um, I, was, I think my mum bought me an Xbox and it came packaged with Halo 2. And I played Halo 2. And I was like, this is the most amazing cinematic experience I've ever had. Like, it blew my mind. And that game, had, well, the, the Halo franchise has so many references to Aliens, to other films. It's insane. And, and, you know, everything is a remix. You know, so as we progress in the future, you know, all these great ideas and, and iconography will get reversioned. Um, and, yeah, uh, it, it was... So when I... When, Part, it's weird now because when I rewatched Aliens recently, and it reminds me of Halo. <laughs> so the whole thing goes full circle, and I love it. You know, and um, uh, that's what great ideas, you know, should become. They should be immortal. They should constantly be, you know, reborn in new properties. Yeah. It's it's really cool how, as you said, like things get remixed and. and- we, we've talked about this on the show, like probably ad nauseum, but I, I never really get tired of it is how uh, these things come in waves. So in the, in the nineties and David, I'm sure you can talk about this a lot. You know, we have like very 
distinct sort of graduating um, styles and you know an increasing complexity in what can be done with the growing technology. So you start off with games like Doom and then you you know quake and that becomes like a you know now we have 3D worlds like for real and then we have this transition into like the immersive sim sort of stuff you know you have thief you have your Deus Ex all of that and and right now in the retro shooter community same thing is happening again. like history is literally repeating itself or you know we started off we had something like dusk which is a direct homage to doom quake that kind of thing and then and, and just to keep it on just talking about new blood in 3d realms now you know that we had like ion fury and then now we're gonna see things like uh graven or core decay which are much more in that kind of immersive sim territory um it's really bizarre but as you said like it's just a remix of what we saw before it's just coming in waves it really is the i guess entertainment popular culture in general is kind of cyclical because now i mean 10 10 years ago mm-hmm. 15 years ago for sure but maybe even 10 you wouldn't have seen a lot of game room tours or you know nes sega genesis collector videos on youtube now they're everywhere i'm like i want to see i want to show you my genesis collection i'm kind of to the point where i'm like Everybody has one. I've seen it. What else you got? And indie games have kind of uh, done that same thing, where how did indie gaming really take off? There you go. Is that the classic? <laughs> there you go, man. That's cream of the crop right there. I was uh, that, that. oh, now he's going to go get his. I have mine over there. I'm at a disadvantage. Um, <clears throat> yes, yeah, see, this is like we're bringing back the playground wars of my youth. I, my best friend and I almost split up because he was Sega and I was Nintendo. I was like, whatever, man, I've got Street Fighter 2. And then Mortal Kombat came on on Genesis with the blood code. And I was like, all right, yeah, I need to come over and play your Sega Genesis. But, uh, you know, this is how indie development really started with 8-bit style platformers. And now they're kind of moving back up into like 16 and 32-bit style. And so I'm not surprised, as you said, with FPS, you know, Dusk was really this homage not even a Doom, but really Quake. Like Dusk yeah. looks like it could have been made in the Quake in the id Tech engine. Um, and now we're moving into the like Deus Ex style games. Well, a lot of these games are being made in the Quake Engine, like Doom yeah, Engine exactly in the Quake Engine, uh, exactly. Yeah, and I think, oh, man, we're we're really hitting these three pointers today because I, mm. I think I said earlier, like, oh, the reason why I think that games like Doom and Quake have such strong modding communities even today is because you know they they have always made it available. John Carmack had a very strong opinion that just release the source code. Yep. And because of that, people have been doing it for like 25 years. So if somebody shows up and they want to work in the Quake engine or they want to work in the Doom engine, there's a bunch of people who are like nearly 30-year experts at this that they could just mm-hmm. lean on um, where you don't have that um, same sort of history or um, I don't know, passing of the torch, generationally speaking, with a lot of these other games that weren't as widely available. Yeah, that's something actually I talked to. So, so near the end of Rocket Jump, um, I talk about how I think one one of many reasons these these classic FPS um, games that we're going to talk about in the documentary are still so popular today is because of that culture of of giving of John yeah. Carmack saying, "Here's the Doom source code. Make what you will. I want to play what you build now." Um, when Doom 2016 launched. It came with Snap Map, which was a really like bare bones sort of modding map maker. And you couldn't do much with it because Bethesda and id didn't want to let you create your own mods. Because here's the problem with mods, right? Um, to, to, to publishers, the longer you can keep a game alive by building your own levels for it, the less likely you are to give them money to buy a new game. And so they don't want to, to give you those tools. Um, Doom... And Doom and Quake especially are still going today. I especially love the Doom modding community. I consider Doom the greatest FPS of all time. Just ask Robert. I'm banging on about that at every meeting. Um, because you can play so much with it. You know, I look at a mod like Brutal Doom. It doesn't even really resemble Doom. It's so different. The gameplay is so different. And yet the fundamentals are still there. And I think that's that's something that, like, nothing against Call of Duty, but you don't see a, a mod community teaming in that scene there isn't really any way to mod that game unless you're going to get very very 
stripped down to the code in that game. Doom, you can yeah. you can just make you could make Call of Duty and Doom right now if you wanted to, and it could play just as well. There's a huge argument um, back, you know, maybe like two years ago within the Quake Champions community because people like didn't understand that you could like, how are you going to make a Quake game and not let me make levels for it? That's like that's that like half half the game to me is I want to make levels for it and then. But then you realize at some point is like, well, this game is so fucking high fidelity. Like, unless you've got a, I mean, a supercomputer in your house, you're not gonna be able to do this. Like, it's not yeah. gonna be as widely available anyway. Even if they it's, could accomplish that, it's true. But that something was really something something fundamental, something primordial was missing from Quake Champions. It's, it's a great Quake game. It mm-hmm. looks like Quake. It feels like Quake. I love playing it. But another little key component, one of those little things that adds a lot were bots. They didn't ship with bots. And I'm thinking like, as if I'm a pro player, how am I going to jump in the game and learn the maps? I don't want to learn against real humans because they're going to be just running amok all over me. I want to go in with bots, turn them way down so they just kind of stand there and drool. And then I have time to run around the maps, learn the territory, learn the weapon spawns. But it's that's something that the 90s FPS games, especially those bot-driven games like Quake 3 and UT did really well. They kind of thought of everything. And then UT took it to the next level by building in mods. Like, hey, you want to play Instagib? Hey, you want to muck around with the gravity? You could do that in Quake by typing in, like, programming, like, commands into the console. But UT, you just click, oh, let's play with gravity here and then go. And then it's like you're running around rocket jumping on the moon. It's awesome. It's it's really weird how I think you said it a couple of minutes ago, how the, uh, the perception, at least from the corporation is that like, if we allow people to mod the game, it's somehow a detriment to them. And mm-hmm. look, I'm, I am not a millionaire CEO of some giant company who has any vested interest in this. And I'm sure they've calculated it down to the last cent. Uh, but there's a reason why people are still buying the original doom now and it's not because everybody just wants to play doom it's because like oh i could use this engine to make whatever i want and there's a fuck ton of people doing that like a lot of people there's a whole community around this um who are now like you know you, you brought up brutal doom like sergeant mark is making uh brutal fate which is going to be a commercial game built in the gz doom engine mm-hmm. um and i i've i've been of the opinion like hey you know Ideally, everybody has to buy the game itself to be able to take the wads and move them over so mm-hmm. that they can create their stuff or play the mods in, at all. And then B is like, why not just have it get with these people and let's just come up with a license and then people can actually have Steam integrations and things like that with these games because it's such a, I mean, it's a closed garden to some extent and I feel like they stand to make money off the modding community without interfering with it, really. Instead they, of, go ahead. they do, and I, I think you're exactly right. And I think they've realized that because if you look at the most recent uh, re-releases of Doom and Doom Two, especially, I think they came out like in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually like every couple months or so, Bethesda said, "Hey." here's a mod that you can download for free, no matter which version of the new of our re-release you're playing. Like I'm on switch and they, you know, John Romero a few years ago made a couple, just a couple years ago made sigil, which he described as like, it's, this is, this is sort of what I see as the unofficial fifth episode of doom. And then Bethesda and Zenimax actually reached out to him and said, why don't we just give this away for free? And then it kind of becomes the unofficial official or officially unofficial fifth episode of doom. And that's like, it might seem a minor thing, but to me that was a big step because I'm like, wow, this is the first time that Bethesda is, as the new owner of id, I say new, but they bought them like 12 years ago, has has made an overture to any semblance of a modding community to say, hey, let's add on to this game that you've already given us money for, which is usually taboo in those big corporations. So to me, it was really promising of, of uh, good things that still to come. It's, you bring that up, I believe the the other show that I produce, one of the other shows that I produce, is called Doom is Dead, um, and it's by the Multiplayer Doom Federation guys. Uh, shout out to them, um, and also excellently produced show. Uh, I'd say that the guy who does all the editing for that is really really good because he's me. And uh, but I remember as you said that <laughs> I remember they had a they had Doctor Sean on from Odomex, and I believe he was involved. He was like one of the guys that was involved in porting some of those mods 
mm-hmm. over to the, the re- re- recently re-released versions of Doom 1 and 2. Yeah. And there, there's industry here. There's a lot to be done. There is. The fans. Stand. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, you're never going to find anyone more passionate than than fans. That's what Robin realized when he reached out and assembled our teams. Like, we're all doing this because we love this. I mean, even our Slack, Robin's like, well, what do we think about this game? And then, like, he has to kind of we derail his discussion because for half an hour we're talking about, oh, do you remember this level and do you remember this gun? And we're just like gushing about it. Very sort of a, it's they're very frustrating. Very frustrating for you, not for us. We're having fun. We're, we're this is this is the sort of documentary we're going to make where it's just going to be even the developers. You know, John Romero is such a passionate guy. He's a historian himself. You can ask him about any FPS. And he'll just gush about it. Not from the perspective of, man, you're talking about Duke Nukem 3D, but you were kind of competing with them. He doesn't see it like that. He's just like, this is what this game did. And, oh, I wish Quake would have done this because Duke Nukem 3 did it or it did it so much better. Like, it's just there's this excitement. You know, developers started as fans. And and there's, again, we're coming back to that cyclical nature of everything. Uh, fans make the games and, and the games make the fans. That's how it should work. Well, what would have been id without 3D Realms and Apogee and vice versa? You know, like if they didn't, it's, exactly. it's like it's like having WWE without a competitor. We saw that for 15 years after WCW crash, and it sucked. It and bad. now that AEW's back, everybody's not nobody's pulling the punches anymore. It's everybody's having to work hard. WWE is acting like they don't exist. AEW, meanwhile, is just like we're better than the competition, and we know it, and racking up all the money in the fans, and it, without. Without that, I mean, capitalism doesn't work without competition. However you feel about capitalism, uh, nothing really works without competition. If you don't have your uh, brother to wrestle with you when you're a kid, you know, how are you going to learn how to wrestle? Like, That's true. You're so right. I'm thinking back to like yeah. body slamming my brother on our trampolines <laughs> and watching him tumble through the air. Exactly right. Yeah. That's how yeah. I became the professional wrestler I am today. So. I'm proud of you. But I mean, just in <laughs> What's your wrestling you know, name? What's your wrestling name? Uh, okay, I've, I've actually thought about this. I am prototype because I am the blueprint of the future. Boom. That is, There's that my is catchphrase. The, that's John catchphrase. Cena's original. Movie. I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm better than John Cena. I even oh. took the protoplex. I'm like, nah, John Cena, don't use a protoplex. We're kind of called, I don't remember what I called mine, but I had a whole character built out. Uh, I actually liked, we're going to go off, we're still on a tangent. This is like, Robin's like, this is our Slack chat room coming to life right now. But I, I would, <laughs> I, I really like that. <laughs> I loved the ruthless aggression era. I'm a huge Randy Orton mark. I don't care who knows it. And someone should tell Monday Night Raw that there's competition because even SmackDown's kicking their ass right now. But <laughs> uh, talking about AEW, I've got to tell you that I I worked quite closely with Chris Jericho. So we oh, did. This, we what did does his dick taste like? Um, <laughs> I've got a random story. I ended up oh, no. okay. It doesn't involve anything like that, but like. Um, <laughs> I, I ended up on a Zoom call with Peter Weller, aka Robocop, and Chris Jericho, because Peter Weller, we were, um, I was Skyping into our studio in Los Angeles, where we shoot a lot of our interviews, and uh, those two crossed over, uh, and oh. that was a very bizarre moment <laughs> in my life, being on a three-way chat with Peter Weller and Chris Jericho, but we did a Chris Jericho edition a collector's edition of our In Search of Darkness Part 2, and he's in it. He is a crazy, crazy horror fan. Yeah. He knows his shit. Like, he's, like, really good friends with Eli Roth, too. Yeah, like, he, he yeah. is on point. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't that familiar with him as a sports entertainer, right? But, like, legit expert level on 80s horror and charismatic as hell. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I learned about a lot of those, old, like, Italian horror movies from the 80s because I read Chris Jericho's biography and he was talking about uh you know him and Eli Roth were reading or watching uh Cannibal Holocaust and stuff like that and and I was like what is this and that took me on a whole journey like <laughs> that was kind of a dark period those are not really fun movies to be honest with you but like, I get it um, but he makes them he, when he talks about them like the two I suppose famous super fans that we had in those documentaries was Corey Taylor from Slipknot Oh uh, yeah, he's actually a producer um, with me, and uh, and Chris Jericho, and those two are buddies as well. So that is so funny that you just said those two names in succession like that. Because um, I was talking with the Realms Deep group, and I asked Zach, like, "Hey, can you get me in contact with those FPS dot guys? I think that'd be really fun." And then I was like, 
you know, I'm, I'm already going to be in the postal documentary. I'm, I need to like become one of these like kind of regular talk. That's good marketing. Like the, the always dependable talking head guy, which is Chris Jericho, you know, Sebastian Bach and Corey Taylor in every VH1 music <laughs> documentary ever made. <laughs> Corey's the real deal, man. Like, yeah. um, uh, he, uh, I actually just emailed him last week cause we were trying to get connected with Trent Reznor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I Good couldn't luck. find any any angles, and he, he didn't know him. He was like, "Look, I'm going to ask around and, and see if I can get you hooked up." But he, um, you know, in terms of rock stars that I've come into, like legit rock stars that I've come into contact with, he's the real deal. He's just a really humble guy, and you know, we stuck him in a studio in, in Las Vegas for like four hours, and he didn't miss a beat. Like he was on point, and he's. He, he loves it. It's such that era of filmmaking left such an impression on him um, to the point where the, you know, in Slipknot, the, the guys that designed the masks, that, that's Tom Savini, who is like the 80s horror FX yeah. guy. So it comes back and, you know, uh, full circle. But, but yeah, amazing experience. Isn't it interesting how the, the same rule that I said earlier in my first three pointer applies here? the generation of guys that were making the best music in the nineties, again, grew up watching that shit in the eighties. It was a really special time just to, and, and it just influences everything after it. It never really went away. I mean, there's still some really good shit in the nineties movie wise, but I feel like you're right. It did kind of, it just took a different direction. I think like Pulp Fiction was probably the nail in the coffin for the, or, or Reservoir Dogs, maybe even. For a lot of it's interesting. Stuff. We do want to do a '90s. We're doing there's In Search of Darkness one and two, and we're mm-hmm. going to development on part three. I never dreamt I'd be doing a part three, but the audience wants it, um, so we're doing part three, and that's really going to focus on the VHS era, yeah. like the stuff that never made it close to a cinema. We're going to sort of double down on that, um, but the, the '90s is something we, we want to cover because um, obviously. The 80s was the last bastion of practical effects. Yeah. And a lot of those effects now look great still, like they're timeless. But when you get to the 90s, it's the birth of CGI. And so a lot of the material from the 90s really is dated very, very poorly now. Exactly. Um, but, you know, again, with this sort of revisionist recontextualizing um, a whole decade of horror, there's going to be some amazing films you've never seen right, which we want to bring to your attention as a horror fan or as a film fan. And that's going to be the challenge. And also 90s nostalgia is absolutely huge right now. So nostalgia works in 30-year cycles. So all the directors directors and filmmakers of the 80s were inspired by all the sci-fi and horror from the 50s. You know, you just ask Joe Dante about that and he'll, you know, give you a great answer. Clot 2, Barada, Neck 2 is... you know that that's everybody remembers it from the Evil Dead, but that's from the day the Earth stood still. Exactly, and that's it, a thirty-year cycle. Thirty-year right cycle, you know, and yeah. and um, it's it's amazing. I mean, it. I, I love it. I think nostalgia is very very powerful, right? And I think that um, when I think about FPS and and the film we want to make, we want it to feel nostalgic. We want you to feel nostalgic, um, and we want you to fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, just to your point, uh, I mean, who is Duke Nukem if not Bruce Campbell with more guns, right? Like, hail to the king, time to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And, and um, I mean, Doom was inspired chiefly by aliens, not the first one, but the second one. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, all this stuff go does go in, in cycles. And I, I think there's so much synergy between, uh, you know, the early types of, of, of movies, sci-fi and horror movies, and especially FPS games. And just to speaking to the timelessness of it, taking it back to Doom, as I always do, um, I was helping a uh, fellow producer, Richard Moss, get some capture footage earlier this week. And for the first time, I played the Aliens Total Conversion for Doom, which had been out since I was 11, 12 years old and played this game, but I'd never gotten to play it because I didn't really have access to the internet until like a couple years later. And it's still really creepy. And this is this is a mod that's played in the 1993 game engine, but so atmospheric, and um, it's just really cool. Right, 
back then it made me feel the way I felt playing Doom for the first time, which I considered as much a horror game as I did an action shooter. Uh, and it's just really cool to kind of, when you take this, the 40,000 foot view to see how all this stuff in popular culture, all the connective tissue that binds it together. I find it very interesting that like we, we've just, we've just been talking about like that era of games the whole time. And, mm-hmm. and so for you as the historian, why is it that uh, this, the later things and especially the modern stuff isn't hitting as hard? And I, I don't think we're going to be talking about a lot of these games in the same way that are currently coming out in 30 years, the same way that we're talking about Doom. And we'll probably still be talking about Doom. We'll probably still be talking about Quake. I will. Yeah. I'm curious, though. I, I think because there, there are several reasons. That. It's a great question. The first is that... Um, you know, id released Doom in '93, Doom Two a year later, and then Final Doom came out in '96 as a fan package, and then Doom went moribund until 2004, where Doom Three was kind of divisive. I really liked it, but I'm a horror buff as well, um, and so I, I appreciated what it set out to do. It was flawed, but you know, no masterpiece is perfect. And then it went moribund again until 2016. Call of Duty, there's a new one every year. I can't, I could not tell you off the top of my head the Call of Duty from three, four, five years ago. I can't keep track of them. Um, and I think that's one reason why Activision doesn't want you to get too attached to any one Call of Duty. They want you to play this one until the next one comes out, and then they want your $60 for that one. And I'm not knocking that franchise, but it's really hard to get attached to individual games when you are oversaturating your own market with them. Nintendo does this too. There's not a new Mario game every year. If there was, we would get tired of Mario. We'd get tired of Zelda. Um, that is why Doom is still special because every now and then, you know, there are people like me who are always playing it. I play Doom at least once a year because it's just fun to relax with now. But every now and then, you know, John Romero will come back and make an official, unofficial map pack for it. And that, boom, it's back in the news. Or a modder like Sergeant Mark IV will come around and do something with it, like Brutal Doom, and boom, it's back in the news. I don't know when the last time was I heard someone talk about Call of Duty 4. That game is hugely influential, but it's not really part of the zeitgeist anymore because so much more has come out since then. That... I talked earlier about flavors. There's so many flavors of FPS from the 90s and the early 2000s. I feel like, you know, Bioshock and the Orange Box came out within months of weeks, really, in some cases, as Call of Duty 4. I kind of consider those the last of that era when Call of Duty 4 was so hugely popular that, I mean, even Capcom took their horror franchise, Resident Evil, and were like, we want the Call of Duty audience. And then Resident Evil 5 and 6 came out, and they were just kind of abominations because they didn't know what they were. They had this total loss of identity. It's so funny because I th- Resident Evil 5, for a lot of people, like, and I'm like, have you ever played Resident Evil? And they're like, yeah, I played 5, you know, like, because the co-op was really good. Yes. And also it's my favorite market. co-op game of all time, so I'm contradicting yeah. myself, but, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it totally just missed the mark. Five and six were nothing, you know, especially coming off of four, which to me is like the greatest game ever made. Yep. Like, wow. Uh, and that's that's the thing, right? Like, th- with also, Robin was talking about excess earlier. Mm-hmm. The 90s FPS genre was kind of like that, but in terms of creativity rather than money. Yeah. You didn't have to sell 10 million copies just to break even. You could sell, like, Doom sold... I think it took them a while to even hit a million because back then the bar was so much lower and all these other studios, what would be considered triple A studios could make games. They could sell between 500,000 to a million copies and be satisfied with that, have made a profit from that buy Ferraris from that. And it was fine. But today like do Resident Evil six, that series tanked for a while because Resident Evil six only sold like 6 million copies. That was considered a failure. And so because publishing is risk averse, you have to go with what works. And so they, you know, soon there was no one left to really copy Call of Duty. There was just always Call of Duty. And they really didn't start to change the formula and still the, until the, you know, buy-in rate every year started to drop and drop and drop and drop. Now, now you have these indie FPS games like Dusk, like um, Ion Fury, where they're, it's, not just, it's not just nostalgia that's part of it, but there's more creativity again. There's there's more flavor again. That's what excites me. I love I love those games, and it's because of the creativity. I never know what I'm going to see 
from one level to the next. And that's another hallmark of the 90s FPS. Like people complain, well, Quake didn't have a story. My answer is who cares? The levels were the stories, the exploration and the encounters. Those were the stories. It was non-authorial storytelling. It was, it was the story was your experience playing the game, your experience with three of your buddies on the couch next to you in your dorm room playing Halo 2 all night in deathmatch and your crazy kills with the laser sword. You know, those are the stories. That was the fun. But you, you can't really have that now unless you're turning to to indie games. I mean, even a few years ago, Microsoft announced that they were taking split screen out of Halo 5, I think. And the community was just like, come on, that's been there since the beginning. What are you going to oh, No split screen. I can't play with my my kids. I can't play with my friends. That's how we played it. That's how we played it when I was in college or whatever. All you got to do is just go buy another PlayStation or another That's TV what they want you to and do. And another copy of the game another and another game. Xbox Live subscription. And it yeah. just adds up. You know, it's, it's excess that doesn't work in favor of the fans. And that's when it gets troubling for me. Um, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why I'm so staunch about the indie stuff. Like I, that's all this podcast really has been about is mm -hmm. talk. Let's talk about the people who are doing this because I think they're smarter than they realize. And many of them like, are just kind of like, I'm just, they're just doing it out of necessity. Like, this is just what I have to do to be a game developer. But right. it's like, no, you, your return on investment is going to be much bigger than another project who, if you can, if you can market it effectively, your return on investment's way higher because you're not investing anything in the beginning. You know, it's right. barely cost. It's costing you your time. Right. Um, and if you have like, you know, a Patreon or a Kickstarter or something like what you guys are doing, it's, it's not your 50 grand, you know, you're, you're not going to die, uh, <laughs> because your investors are going to come at you with a torch and a pitchfork or whatever. Like it's, it's a much easier way to kind of do it. In my case, the same thing. Uh, I'm not putting any money into our games, um, other than just paying the developers. That's mm -hmm. it. It's all There's about nothing to... to be said about crowdfunding. Um, that's very unique um, because uh, I don't look at our backers as investors because it's not equity crowdfunding, it's rewards-based crowdfunding. But I think that having backers makes you accountable. It has to make you accountable. Um, and it's like the, the group kinetic energy drives the project forward so you know we have a synopsis internally we have a proposition on kickstarter all of those kind of things that 100 percent is going to develop and iterate via our backer base because they we will go to them and say hey what do you think about this what do you think about that it will make its way into how we develop the experience for that group of people and that's what's really powerful about crowdfunding like it's you know, I, I'm not buying a DVD or a Blu-ray off the shelf for 10, for 10 bucks, right? I'm actually making something happen by backing a project or supporting a creator on Patreon, you're helping manifest something and that changes the relationship between you and the work and it, and it, so our backers I see as, um, I'm trying to get the right word, but that they are, they are part of the project. They're, they're contributors, but their names are in the project. It's part of them. It's, 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 you know, we, we, we see this, um, you know, people framing the posters, you know, taking screenshots of the credits and posting it on Instagram with like arrows to like, this is me, because it's a reflection of who they are. It's all about identity and who you align with. And that's why crowdfunding is such a powerful tool if you approach it in the right way you know um i would hate to do this in a to do this type of project in a vacuum because it wouldn't turn out right you know we need the audience to co-create with us what's really interesting is like you guys said you have like 500 backers something like that at this point and right now yeah probably <laughs> so, a lot more like <laughs> By the time this airs, but yeah. Well, so we're, we're three days in, right? And we have literally three days and we've got, we've just hit 509 backers, right? Which is pretty good. But let's do the math here. Think about how much money we're talking about and how many people that is. That's how much those people care um, and can't afford to help. It's, yeah. that's insane. So as of right now, um, where are we? The 2nd of July, we've raised 42,000. 319 pounds which is about fifty five thousand uh, dollars which is which is really good um 
so yeah like it's how do i put it it's sort of um obviously the more resource we have the more we can do um but you know we part of our proposition is to have a discord exclusively for backers and we want them to feel like they're part of this you know we're a very flat structure we're very approachable and we're going to talk about the project when you back one of our projects it's about going on the journey with us and feeling part, that's part of what we sell it's part of that experience um, and i think that's what's unique about these kind of projects is that you're not just gonna i hope people don't just back us and then wait for the blu-ray to arrive in the post right um you know a, a lot of people do that that's fine but i think you're missing out on the full extent of the experience which is actually we want to hear from you we want to know what you want to see you know and what's wonderful is when you start a project like this people start coming out of the woodwork i've been getting emails from designers from composers who are just like this sounds really cool can i help and i'm like yes please you know um this is what this is all about it's it's ultimately you know fan driven look at what you're doing with the show and the chats you guys are having you're like having a blast you know <laughs> it's fun this is you know this is what this is what i love doing and being part of i really do Yeah, so we're we're like almost an hour in, and I know David, you have other shit you got to do, but this has been really fun, and I'm I, I'm kind of mind blown just seeing this project. This is not something I ever really thought was going to happen. Like seeing a, a full on documentary, a three hour plus doc. I, I figured there'd be an FPS documentary, but I figured it'd be like you know an hour or whatever like Netflix thing that doesn't really uh, service to the fans the way it should. Mm -hmm. or is like limited by you know some corporation's idea of what it ought to be and it, this is beautiful and where i kind of want to leave off is you know what what is it that made you want to do this in the first place what made what made you want to be a documentarian a and what made you want to kind of like catalog all of this information and that, that question is for both of you but start with I'll the, let robin yeah. take it first yeah honestly um i reached I'd always worked in television and, and making documentaries has been my career, but mm -hmm. I set up a, a, I kind of veered off in my twenties and ran a corporate media company and I was, I hit 40 and I felt really disconnected with what I was doing. Um, and basically I was like, look, I want to work on something I really care about. Um, and I, the first documentary I produced with this group creative EC was about eighties action movies. <laughs> in search of the last action heroes and i remember the first day of putting that together and i was like man i'm i'm loving my life this is so much fun and it just snowballed and um you know uh, it there's no rules we've got no rules we're not beholden to anybody apart from our backers so we can make these films as long as we want we don't care like we just want to we want to indulge kind of super fans and because I only work on stuff that I care about. Um, you know, going back to what I said earlier, Halo 2, that the whole Halo franchise for me is something that had a profound effect. I'm, I'm not a gamer. I'm, you know, I've got that terrible issue of being not very good and competitive. So actually playing FPS games is a hugely frustrating experience for me personally. But just the visceral experience, the world building, the characters, the I remember my heart beating playing this game. You know, and, and sweating and the adrenaline. I'm like, wow, I, it blew my mind. And um, that's what prompted me to um, look into um, producing an FPS documentary because there's so much there. It's got all the drama. It's got the imagery, the iconography, the characters. It's up there with movies. It's probably more immersive than movies. And you've probably spent more time in that environment than you have watching movies. And the way we covered movies, we did it right. You know, and we wanna, I wanna see that for gaming. And I think that FPS is the perfect genre to do that with. And it's really exciting and I'm so hyped. And just being on this show now, chatting to you about it, like I'm just, I feel so grateful um, because it's, I'm having such a blast. It's it's definitely like shoot, remove the word shooter from it even but just the first person experience in gaming i mean when that first happened um 
that is as close to true immersion as we get until they figure out VR technology and make but it it's like mad, uh, right? I remember playing for hours and then closing my eyes and I'd close my eyes and I'd still see the reticle and you know, yeah. like it would be imprinted on my mind. Um, I had a, a girlfriend I had at the time used to get really cross with me for playing Halo two for hours and ignoring her, <laughs> you know, and it was, um, yeah. you know, uh, there's nothing like it. And I, I look at it as, as high, you know, the way that people look at cinema and they put that on a pedestal as a, as an experience, as art, right. Without sort of getting fancy, I think that gaming full stop should be elevated. And, and that's how we're looking at FPS. We're looking at master crafts, people that put this together, made their imaginations real. That's mind blowing to me. I love it. I think gaming, part of what makes it special anyway, is the fact that it, it is the coming together of many, many different art forms. You know, it's not just what you're playing. It's like the artwork, the the music, the cinematic experience, the, you know, there's voice, there's actors involved in many of these things. Uh, there's computer science. There's so much, so many different things coming together with a film. Nothing wrong with films. I love films, but like it's linear. You know, it's just this kind of like thing that you're looking at on a screen and you don't interact with it. Um, so the in interactability of games is also, it just makes you feel more connected to it. Um, and it's, it's hard to quantify, but it's certainly, there's certainly a reason why it's so um, pervasive throughout culture. And since, I mean, I was born in 95 and I don't remember any time when video games didn't exist, but like there was a transitionary period at some point. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's that's why I that's why I do this. I've been um, professional writer, meaning for a paycheck most of the time, mm -hmm. uh, for for seventeen years. And I write. I found my niche. I I've, I've write and publish fiction as well, but in terms of nonfiction, I love to write the stories of how these games were made because, surprisingly, full accounts aren't out there. Um, one of my one of the foundational books in my career is, is David Kushner's Masters of Doom in 2003. I love that book. Everybody loves that book. But I when I was writing Rocket Jump, I don't like to retread ground. I like to find new angles on stories or I, I just say, well, I'm gonna find another one that hasn't been told. But Rocket Jump, it, you know, David Kushner wrote about Quake, but that was near the end of the book. It was really about Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. And so I said, well, Rocket Jump will start with Quake. So I, I want to write a sort of spiritual successor to Masters of Doom. And that's what I think Rocket Jump is. And I've done that with other companies in the games as well. Um, some of my best sellers have been the Stay Wild Listen series about Blizzard and Diablo, Warcraft and Starcraft. I'm working on one right now about um, Mortal Kombat that I announced earlier this year, and that'll be out. Publisher wants it out, I think, next, late next winter for, it, for that franchise's 30th anniversary. And I'm telling all these cool stories. And as a storyteller, there's nothing better. So when I met Robin... I've been thinking for a long time, I'm like, you know, I, I love to write books. It's my it's my lifeblood, but I want to explore other realms of storytelling. And that's uh, what FPS and some other documentaries we've been spitballing will give me the opportunity to help do. I get to tell stories in other mediums. And I can't think of anything better to do with my time, honestly, than to be creating and telling I, stories. I, I keep saying to David, meeting you was a, a complete gift. Um, and there's... I, there's some guys who made a documentary which is coming out pretty soon about Goldeneye, and they guys mm -hmm. that based down in Melbourne, um, Australia, and uh, uh, they they privately messaged me and they said, "Listen, David is like a really good contributor, <laughs> right? And like he's really helped this film come together." Uh, so that's sort of in the back of my my mind um, as well. But this is yeah, like it. Good I get good ideas deserve to be born you know like you 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 start something very small and you see it build and build and build and build and you get that momentum and that's what we're witnessing right now with this project and it's like the most fun at work i could possibly have same and it's very flattering to hear stuff like that and i think that's why i think that's why you have teams like ours that work so well we're all doing this because what else would we be doing it's we can't imagine not doing it it's just not it's so having much fun yeah, it, it really is. It really is a ton of fun, um, especially. And it, it's nice to see uh, the fruits of your labors pay off. You know, the Kickstarter is doing so well and the fan engagement. 
they're asking a lot of the same questions. They're asking about the same contributors that we we foresaw. And that's because we're kind of on you know the same wavelength. We know what fans want because we're fans ourselves. So it's been pretty cool to be a part of that. It's uh, it's been a wild fucking journey for me too. In the same regard, like I can't imagine not doing this. Um, I completely understand that feeling. And, and there are times when you're just like, why do I do that? You know, why do I wake up at you know before I want to to go interview people that live across the world about you know an FPS documentary or whatever? And simply because I really want to, <laughs> like number one, and then number two is just like whatever comes after that. Um, slowly building up, and that's one of the cool things is that you're talking about like how if you hadn't met David or whatever, you end up meeting all these incredible people who become important either because they're friends or like later on they bring it back like hey man i remember you because you did this amazing interviewer or you you had me in the film and i just wanted to show you something new and maybe that's the thing that just jump starts the next segment of your life it's all tangential and interconnected and beautiful i, I love what you guys are doing and so i the, can't can't wait to the see the real it. fps documentary is the friends we made along the way oh that's right, such a nice right, way to sign up. Right, right. I feel like we have to end it. Yeah. Yeah. Can we can we edit that bit out? <laughs> That's the end of the show. Peace, love, rockets. Peace, love, rockets. There we go. Yeah. That's uh that's the QuakeCon mantra. If you've never been I don't know that we're ever gonna have another real QuakeCon again. Oh, I hope. I love QuakeCon. But uh we got realms deep and I'm, I'm balls deep in that. So let's just do it. <laughs> <laughs>